Welcome to University Hill, located on the campus of the University of British Columbia in beautiful Vancouver. Each week, we gather on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Musqueam people. We worship, sing, pray, and engage with scripture as we seek to grow in faith and as followers of Jesus. We pray that this podcast of scripture passages and sermons preached will bless your own faith journey. And of course, you're always welcome to join us on Sunday morning. Check out uhill.net for a Zoom link and more information. Our second reading is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 13, verses 1 through 9. At that very time, there were some present who told him about the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. He asked them, Do you think that because these Galileans suffered in this way, they were worse sinners than all other Galileans? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish as they did. Or those 18 who were killed when the Tower of Siloam fell on them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others living in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish just as they did. Then he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came looking for fruit on it and found none. So he said to the gardener, See here, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree, and still I find none. Cut it down. Why should it be wasting the soil? He replied, Sir, let it alone for one more year, until I dig around it and put manure on it. If it bears fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. The word of our Lord. Uh, let's, let's pray together. Lord Jesus, sometimes the things you say are, are hard. Uh, sometimes they feel harsh to our ears. And yet your spirit promises uh, that you'll make known to us what we need to hear for our lives that we might live abundantly, that we might have life that's truly life. And so we pray that you would help us to hear your word well, that you would help us to know you better, that we might make you better known in this world. And we ask it in the name of Jesus, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So on uh, on Friday night, I had the chance to go see the UBC Symphony. A student that I know is a French horn player, and I, I figured that I could pretend I was cultured for, for an evening. And so I went to the, the Chan Center website and I ordered my ticket. And believe it or not, I, I'd never been in the big theater at the Chan Center uh, before then. I, I've been the, the kind of black box theater, the other, the other room, but never in the main space. And so when it came time to book a ticket, Uh, Having no frame of reference, I just clicked on uh, best available seat and I let the algorithm do its work, work its magic. I I didn't even look before I paid. Uh, So it wasn't until I was on my way into the building that I realized I was sitting in seat A23, which is front row center, right in the middle, really close. Me and then the stage right here. You know, which meant that for the first half of the show, I had a, a really marvelous, excellent view of the underside of a, a, a concert grand piano, a handful of cellists, and a symphony's worth of shiny black shoes. 
Uh, the, the person that I actually went to see, I didn't even see her. I only saw her walking to her spot when I caught a glimpse of her uh, crossing the stage. And I, now the moral of the story might be that chasing after what you're told is best may not actually end up being that way. Uh, you know, the back seat in the balcony would have been offered me a better experience of, uh, of the performance than the apparently best seat in the house. But still, this is an orchestra. And so the music is marvelous wherever one was sitting. And the first half of the performance was a Rachmaninoff concerto, which, which may seem a little bit uh, dicey under the current global circumstances, Rachmaninoff being a Russian composer, but the director pointed out at the beginning of the show, or, uh, performance that uh, Rachmaninoff was actually revising uh, this work as he fled the Russian Revolution, so it was kind of poignant. And now, I don't know much about the composer himself, really, but I, I know that his music is, is serious piano stuff. <laughs> that, that's the technical term, in case anyone asks. Rachmaninoff, serious piano stuff. Uh, so even, even though it would have been um, nice to see more than the, the pianist's feet and the underside of the piano, it was, it was still pretty incredible. And if you've ever listened to Rachmaninoff, you'll, you'll know that what makes his music so urgent, so powerful, is its tension. Right? It almost sounds like half the notes are wrong, even though they are absolutely and unquestionably right. The tension is where the good stuff is. And while I'm not sure that the gospel according to Rachmaninoff would be a great seller, uh, all that tension and dissonance did get me thinking about today's gospel passage. Because I think Luke is a master of, of tension and dissonance in his storytelling. Now, on the one hand, he's got some of the most beautiful, marvelous images of grace uh, in the whole Bible. You know, some of the best known and most beloved and beautiful teachings are, are like the prodigal son that we've, I just got to talk about or the good Samaritan. These are only found in Luke's gospel. And... And he doesn't mess around when it comes to calling people to account. He's urgent about justice, fierce on repentance. Luke wants to make crystal clear that following Jesus is not a spiritual adornment uh, on the rest of our nicely ordered lives. It's a wild reordering. It's a whole life commitment. It's a, a Holy Spirit freight train that takes us in directions we may not want to go. It's full of notes that seem wrong. Blessed are the poor, and woe to you who are rich. Love your enemies and pray for your persecutors. Give up your life to gain it. Word, words that seem wrong in our time and place, but are exactly right. You know, right in the center of Luke's gospel. This passage is, is the, the A23 of Luke. <laughs> is this weird story that, that's kind of hard to hear. You know, this stuff is jarring in the mouth of the same Jesus who said that his whole mission is to, to bring good news to the poor and release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, freedom to the oppressed, and the favor of God. I mean, the passage that he quotes from Isaiah way back in chapter 4 to, to explain this mission, to tell us about it, includes the vengeance of the Lord. Isaiah includes the vengeance of the Lord. Jesus leaves it out of his first sermon. So why this repent or perish stuff now. The dissonance doesn't seem quite right. And yet the more I sit with it, the more I think it clearly is. And you might ask, well, what, how could, what could possibly be right and good about the first part of this teaching? 
And it'd be hard to blame anyone who was a little bit doubtful. This seems only harsh. This sounds like Jesus is indifferent to the victims of suffering at the hands of Roman arrogance and violence. That he's disinterested in the tragic death of 18 people killed by faulty engineering. This sounds callous at at best. But you know, if we're coming to know Jesus, we know that callous isn't a word we would use except other than his carpenter's hands. We've seen time and again his patience and compassion, his willingness to be disrupted for the sake of something else, for someone's suffering, his readiness to offer grace. So what's happening here? Is this just a bad day? I think not. I think in a weird way, this this is about grace. I mean, yes, it's urgent. There are echoes of what Isaiah says, seek the Lord while he may be found, as in while there's still time, before it's too late. But it's worth remembering that that Jesus uh, first was speaking in a time when everyone had a a deep sense that that there were spiritual implications to and reasons for everything. If something bad had happened, it's because the gods were offended. If your life falls apart, you must have sinned and God is mad at you. You must have done something to deserve what has befallen you. And it sounds like that's the undertone of these folks coming to tell Jesus about what happened to the Galileans who suffered under Pilate's cruelty. I mean, that explains his response, right? The the gossip around town is about what they must have done to deserve such a horrific fate. You know, for Jews to end up as part of of Roman idol sacrifice must have meant that God had utterly abandoned them for some divinely good reason. But Jesus is quick to insist that that's not how it works, that we don't get what we deserve. Which may seem like a kind of strange good news, but only if everything is going right and we're unreasonably confident in our ability to make it so and keep it that way. Now the truth is we may not attribute every little thing to divine or demonic action these days, but we're just as susceptible to the lie that we get what we deserve. And we've built a whole culture around the myth that if we just work hard enough, if we do the right thing, exercise and eat enough kale, then we'll be able to manifest for ourselves a good life. And if things aren't going well, it must be because you haven't done something or you have done something. And to both our self-sufficient culture and the God-anxious culture that he was speaking to in that first century, Jesus says, no, we don't always get what we deserve bad or good. Now I read something online the other day that pointed out that most of us who've ended up in a pretty good place in our lives uh, didn't just make good choices along the way. Of course we made some good choices, but we actually had good choices to make. We have been privileged in one way or another to have had options, a lot of which are what I think sociologists, if Ralph is here he'll correct me, but (laughs) what I think sociologists might call accidents of history. Where where you were born, to whom you were born, the color of your skin when you were born, all dictated options. These are not things we could choose. They are not things we could possibly deserve one way or another. And what's more, we all know someone who's made apparently all of the right choices and things still went sideways. 
I mean, there's a whole book in the Bible, the book of Job, which is kind of a, a theological thought experiment to help us deal with the challenge and the fa- of the fact that we don't always get what we deserve. Again, it's a strange kind of good news, but Jesus refuses to offer folks up who've been struck by tragedy to the vain assumptions of their neighbors. These people were not worse sinners than anyone else, not worse sinners than you. Grind that rumor mill to a halt, which actually makes space for serious grief at injustice and suffering. Now, because the notion, whether implicit or explicit, that we get what we deserve actually allows us to turn away from injustice and suffering. It protects us from vulnerability. It keeps us from fear that, that something like that, whatever that is, might happen to us because we are somehow morally or spiritually superior. But when we know that's not true, we stand a chance of compassion. You know, kind of ironically, when we know it could all come crashing down, we become less afraid of the ash heap of another person's life, of the rubble of best laid plans and broken dreams. And we can actually be with those who are suffering. And I think in this passage, Jesus strips away the facade of our good choices and moral superiority and forces us to see the humanity of those whose necks are under the boot of the world. The more I think about it, the more I think that that's what Jesus' call to repentance is, to turn away from our self-indulgent, self-aggrandizing, self-sufficient foolishness and turn towards the God who has turned toward us. He calls us to turn away from the ways and means of a world obsessed with self-making and towards the one who loves us and made us. He calls us to stop grasping at what we're told will make for a good life and cling to the one who is the source of all goodness, the source of all life. Because in the end, repentance really is about orientation. It's about what we are putting our hope and trust and lives in. And if it's our own capacity, then perishing is all there will be in the end, whether brutal or banal. We simply don't have the staying power to avoid it. We are dust, and to dust we shall return. There's a stark realism in what Jesus says. But... When our hope, our trust, our lives is in the one who made the heavens and the earth, the one who's determined to make all things new, the one who can bring life out of the grave, then we've got something truly worth living for, not just now, but into eternity. Now, I heard someone say recently that that Jesus didn't come to change God's mind about us, but to change our minds about God. And I don't mean a kind of Old Testament, New Testament sort of way. I I, I mean more more broadly, the world, us Gentiles, most of us. Jesus reveals God's grace, which is by definition that which we cannot earn, that we cannot deserve, that we can only receive. And on the cross, he willingly joins us in the ash heap amongst the rubble and somehow makes a new possibility. Jesus is the promise that ours is the God who will not abandon us when everything goes sideways or worse. No, ours is the God who invites us to bring our mangled hopes 
and expectations, our hurts and the hurts of the world, and to let them be transformed into something new, something more than we can ask or imagine. And I think that shines through in the parable that Jesus follows up with. Now, there's a similar kind of urgency here, as John the Baptist reminded us way back at the beginning of the story, fruitless fruit trees aren't good for much more than kindling, at least as far as we can tell. But mercifully, with God, there is always more than we can tell. The gardener sees something that we don't. God's ways and thoughts are high above ours. God's vision is vastly and mercifully more penetrating. Mercifully, because theologically speaking, we've all failed to bear fruit in one way or another. We've done what we ought not to have done or left undone what we ought to have done. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, as St. Paul puts it. So if we were to get what we deserve, the prospects would not be that good. And honestly, it's a relief to say it. I mean, it's an unbearable burden to imagine that we can live up to God's standards. It's a remarkably freeing thing to admit that we are not perfect. Because then we can know that although we are not perfect, we are perfectly loved anyways. And we can allow that the gardener sees something that we don't always see. And he's prepared to do what needs to be done to save us from a fruitless fate. Now, our great hope is that this conversation between the landowner and the gardener is the conversation at the heart of the Trinity, the heart of God's life. Don't cut it down yet. Let me do more. Now, and I get the impression, at least from the evidence of my own life, uh, that this is not a one-time conversation. I feel like this isn't the first time the landowner and the gardener have had this conversation, and it won't be the last. The one who prayed over his fickle friends, over his enemies and his murderers from the cross, forgive them, Father, they don't know what they're doing, prays over us still. It's wildly good news. It's breathtaking hope. And it allows us to lean into what I think is at least equally wildly good. (laughs) The truth that we are not just made to take up space, but we are made for fruitfulness not as a way of earning God's favor, but just because that's what we're meant to do. When we're healthy, it happens naturally. When we let Jesus have his way with us, tend our roots, prune our dead and dried out bits, deal with our sin infestations that hollow us out, we don't become something else. We become who we're truly meant to be. People who bear the fruit of heaven's kingdom. We become people who are, as St. Paul puts it, uh, first fruits of what's to come. Our lives take on the color and flavor, the aroma and beauty of the world, not as it is, but as it will be. We become hints and glimpses of God's good pleasure in the world. We bear the fruit of the Spirit, love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and generosity and faithfulness and self-control. And our lives become a source of nourishment and healing and delight in the world, whatever we do, and wherever we find ourselves. That's what we're made for. That's what the gardener sees when he looks at us, even in those seasons when we're feeling a little worse for wear, when a harvest of anything good seems hopeless, when our branches are sagged and our leaves are withered. And you know, weirdly, the saints in every generation 
testify to the fact that it's in those unlikely seasons that the gardener seems to take special care, determined to bring life where we thought it was hopeless. This is why we're called to pray and to spend time in scripture, why we worship even when we don't much feel like it. It's why we show up and we say right off the top of our service that we've failed in our fruitfulness this week, not because we need to get ourselves right with God, but because we need to draw near to the one who's drawn near to us as if our lives depend upon him, because they do. We need our hearts tuned to the voice of the one who made us and knows us and delights in us, or we start listening to other voices, fruitless voices. We need to know the gardener who sees us in our fruitlessness and loves us anyways, and who's unwilling to leave us that way. May it be so.